Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. Well, this is the podcast for Multi-Faith Matters. I am the host, John Moorhead, and today my special guest is uh, Jared Bias. I've enjoyed uh, listening to Jared uh, with Pete Enns on their radio program and reading the books that these two produce. It's been very helpful. I'm going to read uh, Jared's bio, bio as we get going here. Uh, Jared Bias is co-host of the popular podcast, The Bible for Normal People, and co-author of the book, Genesis for Normal People. A former teaching pastor and professor of philosophy and biblical studies, Jared lives with his wife, Sarah, and their four children outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Uh, his website is found at jaredbias.com, and folks can find links to the books and to his website in the program notes that go with this podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing his book, Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, let me just start with a, a little introduction as to uh, why this is of such interest to me. Uh, twofold. Uh, one, um, for years I've been in the process of reconstructing and rethinking my own faith, coming from a fairly conservative evangelical background, and so the work that you and Pete are doing has been very helpful in that. In fact, sometimes, as I listen to your podcast or mean your materials, I wonder why I wasn't exposed to this in seminary. I think I've learned more post-seminary maybe even pre-seminary than I did in seminary itself, which says a whole lot about our seminary system. And then secondly, uh, I came out of a new religious movement years ago, a Mormon offshoot. And I, uh, when I became an evangelical, I got involved in evangelical countercult apologetics ministry. And so I, I took a, uh, we almost used the Bible in a weaponized kind of fashion where we would compare and contrast and tear down the worldviews and doctrines of other belief systems. And we thought that was a form of evangelism, interestingly. Um, and I came to discover that that was problematic on a whole number of levels. So much of my experience kind of dovetails with what I've heard you share in other forums. To begin, can you share what, what your background was uh, as you were raised as a Christian and, and some of your journey? Yeah, very similarly, you know, I was I was good at two things growing up in Texas. I was good at being a Christian and I was good at arguing. So it made sense that I would go into apologetics too. So I wanted to do that since I was, um, you know, 12, 13 years old. Um, I wanted to go into what's called presuppositional apologetics. Uh, and, and so that's kind of was my trajectory. And I, I wanted to go to Westminster Seminary, which one had one of the only PhD programs in presuppositional apologetics. And so I ended up at Westminster, but through that within a semester or two, my worldview shifted in terms of wanting to, I mean, frankly, it was looking at the, the behavior and lives and the output, the fruits of the spirit, if you will, of the people in my faculty. Um, and it just seemed to me that the, the life, the Christian life I wanted to live was being uh, more faithfully expressed by my mentors and teachers in the biblical studies department, and not as much those who were doing what I had always wanted to do, which was defend Christianity. Uh, what, was it a, a slow process? Were there aha moments along the way? What was it that kind of caused you to, to stop and rethink this? 
Yeah, I think it was a, a definitely a slow process. I mean, my undergraduate degree is in philosophy, so I was exposed to a lot of ideas. So there were questions in the back. I think a lot of our listeners can relate to this uh, idea that we kind of intuitively had it going on in the back of our minds for a long time, but couldn't allow ourselves to bring it to the the you know prefrontal cortex here. You know, a conscious thought of what's going on. So there was definitely things brewing. But I think for me, the the aha. There were two actually was, uh, I can't remember his name now. I think it's Jerry Coyne wrote a book called Why Evolution is True. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read that book and it was just, it's such a good book. It's very practical. And it was just sort of nail in the coffin, like where I went from default thinking of creation as a six day thing, literal, historically accurate to my default being like, I don't understand all the nuances. They're all smarter than me, but my default is evolution is true for sure. Um, and then secondly, would have been, uh, aha, would have been, you know, having these classes in seminary where we're translating uh, Genesis from the Hebrew and just the whole world of ancient, the ancient Near East and the context and what the ancients were actually thinking when they wrote this stuff down, um, just opened my mind to all sorts of possibilities of what the Bible is. And, and then the implications are, you know, what do we do with it? It's interesting that you mentioned that one of those moments for you was kind of a deeper study of the actually the Bible itself. I'm sure one of the criticisms you get that I get from time to time is you're, you're compromising the Bible or your worldview, your Christianity, your whole faith may be compromised. For me, the way I look at it is the views that I hold today that I didn't hold previously is a result of a deeper study of the Bible, not a neglect of it. Would you resonate with something like that? Yeah. And just on an emotional level, I would say that was probably some of the more hurtful things was uh, I was told my whole life to take the Bible seriously, to dive into it. And then once though my serious take on the Bible ran against the ideological like pre-commitments of the higher ups in whether it's my church where I was a pastor or uh, seminaries, universities. Yeah. So it's, yeah, the, at the emotional level, kind of the, um, idea was we have to take the Bible seriously, but once I started to run aground of pre-commitments, these ideological conclusions of what the Bible can and can't be, once the Bible itself for me started to break down, when I started to look at it seriously, uh, then uh, all of a sudden I was the bad guy. Like I was not taking the Bible seriously. I was allowing my sin to dictate how I read the Bible. And there wasn't any room for this idea that maybe when we read the Bible seriously, it changes our minds about what the Bible is and what we should do with it. The Bible itself can critique it. Um, and there's just not a lot of space for that in the circles that I grew up in. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that's the case in a lot of conservative evangelicalism, the, the tribe that I kind of work with and try and help along. Um, I'd, li- I'd like to get your thoughts on the, the understanding of truth that you had in relation to understanding the Bible and how that changed. You know, there's this phrase that is used in evangelicalism, speaking the truth in love. And sometimes we use that kind of as a cover to bludgeon people and weaponize the Bible. What was your understanding of, of truth in relation to the Bible in the past and, and how has that changed over time? Yeah, so I think there's a conflation of absolute truth and the Bible. And it came from this need for certainty. And at some point, I think in the last hundred years, Christianity became the conduit or vessel for giving us certainty. That's kind of what we were looking for from it. And, and so the best way to have certainty is to know everything. And of course, we can't individually know everything, 
but we can put all of those expectations on the Bible. So the Bible knows everything about everything. So as long as we interpret the Bible right, we can get this sense of certainty. And, and so that was kind of the, 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 uh, the ingredients, I think, for my understanding of truth and the Bible is there is an absolute truth. No one else has access to it except for Christians, and we have access to it through this book, the Bible. And once we have that expectation, then the Bible itself has to be perfect, which is where inerrancy comes from. And it all is this self-referential uh, reinforcing uh, need for certainty at least how, how I would have uh, interpreted that in my tradition growing up. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that you mentioned certainty there. I remember some titles from apologetics books that I read uh, in, when I was younger in my faith, uh, faith founded on fact and uh, evidence that demands a verdict, you know, those kinds of things. And, and I'm not opposed to evidence and I'm not opposed to facts, but at the same time, it seems like there's, there should be greater space for humility uh, for recognizing what we don't know as well as what we think we know. Uh, how did that change for you? Uh, how did you go from someone so interested in apologetics and certainty, and, and now you've created a space where it sounds like you're willing to live with that ambiguity? Well, I mean, some of it was hurting people, to be honest. That, that was my, my experience was recognizing that when my ultimate aim within Christianity was to be right, I was burning bridges um, I was hurting people's feelings. I, I wasn't loving people well. Like I was taught that if we just focus on getting things right, then love follows. Like that is like the most loving thing we can do is tell people when they're wrong, get the facts right. And somehow we'll end up in this utopia if we do that. But in my experience, that never worked. We, when I was doing that, I was actually hurting people. And I was, it, it was just a major disconnect for me. And so to be able to look at the, you know, older women in my congregation, usually they were women, they were older in my congregation who I was trying to like help them get the facts right. Like you have to understand, you know, the doctrine of predestination. You have to understand like all of these nuances of theology because that's what leads to a better world. And they're sort of like waving me off like, I don't know, that's over my head. I just kind of, I show up and love people. And I think that's kind of what it's about. And then to look back as I got older and see the fruits and to recognize they were right. Um, and, and that just made me start to really reconsider this whole scaffolding that I had built up. And to be fair, I think that I had inherited, which is that we, uh, replaced God with being right. Like the most important thing we can do is be right. And if that's the truth, then evidence does need to demand a verdict. You know, our faith does need to be built on fact. So if we start with that end goal of the goal of this thing is to get it right, then all these other things necessarily follow. Yeah, I think you're on to something. I love the title of your book, Love Matters More. Of course, the charge that folks like us open ourselves up to from our conservative brethren is you're, you're giving into emotion, you're being wishy-washy, you're giving up on, you know, the Bible talks about watch your doctrine and your life and these kinds of things. Um, so there, there is a critique that comes to that. But I also think you're on to something. I, I think it was uh, N.T. Wright did a series of uh, of lectures, I think it was the Gifford lectures, where he built up a case for the significance of love in a Christian epistemology. Um, other writers have picked on this similar thread. So what, what are you arguing in your book about how we need to rethink the, the place of love in the Christian life and our understanding of the Bible? Right. I mean, I think it's a good question. And there, there's a reason I didn't title my book, uh, Love is the Only Thing That Matters, right? 
love matters more. So what I'm really, it's a kind of a modest proposal that we maybe take truth finding or truth off the pedestal as the ultimate aim of the Christian life. And we replace that with love. And what that does for me is, is that I can actually, if I put love as the ultimate aim, truth often will follow, right? So it gets very practical. If I want to love my kid well, then I need to know the difference between uh, vitamins and medicine. I need to know, like, there are things I need to know to love well. Um, you know, I have to know that I can't give my kids, uh, you know, I, I always think I always give my mom a hard time in the, you know, growing up in the 80s where, you know, I give your two-year-old uh, soda pop or like a Coke or something. It's like, well, we don't know any different, right? Um, and so, like, as we learn, we learn what love looks like. Um, and so we can, we can take those facts in service of love. But when you have truth as the ultimate aim, love doesn't necessarily follow from that, right? I don't, I don't have to have love to get at facts. That's not part of the deal. But if I have love as the aim, fact-finding and truth is, is part of that. Um, and so for me, it's a matter of how do we replace what I think of as an idol in the Christian faith, but that truth has become this idol because it feeds more of our need for certainty um, and emotional stability and replace that with love. And then once we do that, it rearranges our priorities, I think, in a healthier way. As I said, I think you're onto something. Others are, are arguing similarly, um, but at the same time, I'm sure you've received some pushback uh, from conservative Christians. What kinds of arguments or, or counterclaims are they making in response to your thesis? I mean, nothing substantial. I, I Ironically, it's usually kind of, I feel like a more of an emotional plea of, well, what would happen if we, uh, what, what would happen if we put truth, uh, take truth off the pedestal and put love at the top? Um, and then there's this catastrophizing. Um, so there's not a lot, of, a lot of logic behind it. It's more just like, then uh, we can make truth mean whatever we want it to mean, right? Um, then everything becomes relative. And we're just a, a wash in a sea of cultural relativism. And then we start to devolve into the ethical problem of like, how would you even tell what's right from wrong? And uh, which for me is just kind of a red herring at best of, of what we're trying to talk about. Yeah, yeah, it, it sounds like it's almost like uh, uh, you're not old enough to remember this. There was a game called per Kerplunk where you had marbles and the little sticks and you oh, yeah, would- Yeah, and you pull them out, yeah, 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 Kerplunk. Yeah. And if you if you move remove too many of those assumptions about how the Bible should function, uh, the whole Christian worldview just goes kerplunk. Is that kind of what folks are arguing or claiming? Yeah, and in, in the book, I call it perfectionism. It, there, the, my faith was built on a perfectionist uh, framework, which is if we don't have all of the truth, we can't have any of the truth. But science itself disproves that every single day. Science doesn't ever say that we know everything about everything, and yet it continues to make progress about facts about the world. And so that, that, that perfectionism, which I think was meant from an apologetic standpoint, right? It was meant to say, well, you don't know, like, you don't know everything. And so here's something where you can know everything, and that will give us this, like, leg up. Um, but the problem is when we put our eggs in that black and white basket, it can, it can backfire, um, and I just think it's wrong. It's a, it's a wrong idea of truth to say that if we don't have absolute truth, then we don't have any truth, which what they're really saying is if we don't have absolute truth, we don't have absolute certainty. Now that I agree with, um, but to say we don't have any truth if we don't have all the truth makes no sense and just runs contrary to common sense and 
all of the progress in fact finding and nature and science and natural sciences that we've had over the last 200 years. Well, you've got a pastoral background. Um, what, are you, what are you saying pastorally in your book? And what would you say to listeners and viewers who are concerned about the kind of journey that you have taken, that I have taken, and that you're trying to help facilitate others through the book and through the podcast, who are rethinking the Bible, who are rethinking their faith, um, that, that there's no compromise, but there needs to be a, a new way forward. What kind of suggestions would you have for folks? I mean, my number one suggestion often is that we look inward and we take stock of our own sort of uh, emotional inventory. Where, where are we afraid? And I, I mean, I use that word very intentionally because I think we have a hard time acknowledging a lot. Of, I do the places where I'm afraid. And so those places where I get angry, um, when I'm mad, when someone says something that I disagree with, I've learned to acknowledge that maybe there's actually a fear behind that. Um, and I, and I want to dig deep into what that is. So taking stock of that emotional inventory is, is really important. I think because otherwise we can deceive ourselves into thinking that our motives are quote pure or they're, they're unemotional, that it's just, uh, it, you know, just telling it like it is, is usually the phrase we use. Well, I'm just telling it like it is. Um, when usually we're, when someone says that, they're usually not just telling it like it is. Um, usually there's emotional baggage behind that. There's a story, there's a context, there's a framework. So doing that work first and foremost for ourselves of understanding our own background, our own framework, our own context, what's all the baggage we're bringing to the Bible, to our faith. Um, and then when we can do that, we can maybe start to see things a little more clearly in terms of what our next steps might be. Yeah, I, I resonate strongly with that. Uh, I did a couple of uh, grant research projects looking at why conservative Christians approach other religions in certain theological frameworks, usually negative ones. And uh, we brought social psychology into conversation with theology and I came away from that with the idea, I really think that much of our theologizing is post hoc. That is, we're not going to the text objectively and, and drawing from it. We're bringing, as you say, our baggage, our psychology, our experiences, our fears. And then we happen to find verses that we construct something that, that resonates with basically our assumptions we brought to the text before. Do you think a similar dynamic is going on in other areas of the Christian life? Oh, for sure. I think in general, you know, we, we talk a lot about Richard Rohr. And his idea and understanding that uh, he kind of calls it the tricycle of faith, right? So the thing that drives our faith forward, he says, the front wheels experience. And until we can acknowledge that within these more conservative circles, uh, we're going to continue to, uh, you know, delude ourselves in, into thinking something's true that's not. That we, we do lead by experience. Our faith and our, our theology is led through that by experience. So what that means for me is, you talked about those steps, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive because I was taught that if I just read the Bible as it is and have the plain reading of scripture, that's going to shape my theology and my context. But it's more complicated than that. In some ways, whenever we change our theological assumptions, then that changes how we read our Bible. And so sometimes it's like going to therapy might be the best thing for you in terms of how you read your Bible. Um, because it changes the baggage, it changes those assumptions and context that we're bringing to the text, or at least making them us aware of them. And I think that's, you know, for me, um, thinking about how do we, uh, you know, I was taught 
we don't need social psychology. We don't need the sciences. We just need the Bible. And then through the Bible, we can interpret all those other things. And I just think we are so anemic on the way the world actually works because we put on the Bible this load that it was never meant to carry. It was never meant to answer all those questions. Um, and so I think we need to do a better job as the church of educating ourselves on the principles of psychology and sociology and economics and finance and politics and let those then start to shape how we read our Bible. Yeah, I appreciate that too. Uh, uh, one final question for you that, you know, again, in the context of love, love requires relationships. And I think many times conservative Christians tend to do their faith in the abstract. It's about, uh, I love the text and I love God. And by presenting doctrine and throwing a, an evangelistic invitation to others or at others, uh, somehow I'm loving them. I think that needs to be rethought. Uh, how can we grab onto love as an important part of understanding the Bible, loving God, and also maybe transforming the way in which we relate to others as we bring the biblical text to life and the spiritual lives that we lead. Well, I mean, I just think biblically, we have to think of, uh, you know, first John, I think it's first John chapter four, it says, if a person says, I love God, but hates their brother, he's a liar. Um, and so there's something there, uh, you know, for the person who's, uh, who doesn't love his brother, who he's seen, how can he say love God who, who he hasn't seen? And so I just think even in the Bible, uh, John's great at this. I mean, I just think if we read more John, um, or tried to at least try to figure out how John's theology interacts with Paul's I think we could come away with some interesting conclusions. Um, so I think for me, it's a, it's a theological pre-commitment. For me, I take that verse very seriously. So I don't talk much about loving God outside of the context of loving our neighbor. Um, it's very practical for me because how can I love God if I'm not loving the people around me? And to even get more personal for me, you know, being a pastor, I was really struck by um, Kierkegaard writes this in, in his book, Works of Love where he says, make sure you remember that your wife is first your neighbor. And at first that seems so unsettling. Like I was like, what do you mean my wife is first my neighbor? But as a pastor, it's so easy to love people in the abstract, meaning it was easy to be present with people who I didn't know that well, because I could have that savior complex. But to love people that I know well, that gets super messy. Like <laughs> to love my, my wife who's in my life and in my space all the time and my kids who are needing me all the time. Um, so I do think... It's this shift in saying we can't let ourselves off the hook. It's so easy to love God if loving God doesn't cost us anything practically and relationally. Um, if loving God is uh, having an emotional sentiment toward an abstract idea, um, and then that emotional sentiment toward an abstract idea gives us permission to treat other people like garbage or uh, to ignore and neglect the needs of the people around us, um, I think that's a problem. That's like a major problem. <laughs> so for me, it's flipping that script 
and seeing that Christianity isn't about going to heaven when we die, but it's about what Jesus says. I mean, Jesus is pretty clear about this. The greatest commandment is to love God. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hangs on those. Um, and so we have to take, I just think if we take the words of Jesus and the words of the New Testament seriously, which is what I try to do in the book, I think we come to the conclusion that love matters more. That's kind of, and by love, we mean practical, everyday, dig in the dirt relationship with your neighbors, uh, literally and figuratively. Well, I appreciate your carving out time in a very busy schedule, doing your own podcast and being on other podcasts. Uh, it, it's a great book, and I appreciate you coming by the podcast to discuss it. Absolutely. Thanks so much, John. My guest today uh, has been Jared Bias. And again, the, the book we've been discussing today is Love Matters More, How Fighting to Be Right Keeps Us from Loving Like Jesus. And you'll find a link to that book and to Jared's website and the podcast he does with Pete Enns in the podcast notes. I would encourage everyone to, uh, to read and to listen to the work that he's doing with an open mind. And uh, you might uh, find a fascinating journey as a result. Again, thank you so much for being on the Multi-Faith Matters podcast. I'm the host, John Moorhead. Until the next episode.